you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. You may have heard that California has widened the age range for the vaccine to 65 and over. Find out why that is not happening in L.A. just yet. Plus, what would be a good term to describe L.A.'s diverse musical lineage? You live in the cosmic barrio. I think of Los Angeles as, as a big cosmic barrio. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up. We can begin a serious discussion about what's needed. And then we're going to have to do the arm wrestling to change the uh, politics. When it comes to police reform and improving community safety, a lot has been said, but what needs to be done? We're going to get into that uh, just ahead. But first, let's talk about the coronavirus. Just this past week alone, more than 1,500 people have died from COVID-19 in Los Angeles County. And that's a figure that public health director Barbara Ferrer called, quote, upsetting and frankly, overwhelming. Now, the county is desperate to get those numbers down and are trying to ramp up vaccinations in response. Dodger Stadium opens up as a vaccination center Friday and is expected to vaccinate tens of thousands of people each and every day. Now, it's a promising development, but there's still a lot of questions about how the process of inoculating more and more people will be organized and then carried out. Here to help us get a better idea of those answers, we have with us uh, Dr. Paul Simon. He's the chief science officer of L.A. County Public Health. Dr. Simon, welcome. Thank you. Now, just to start us off, uh, we had heard some positive news from the state uh, that the surge was starting to level. But how would you describe the situation here in L.A. County when it comes to how under control or not the spread of the virus is right now? Unfortunately, the numbers remain very high here. Just today we had, uh, I believe, uh, close to, well, literally thousands of cases and I believe about 17,000. And in addition, we had nearly 300 deaths. So uh, we're, we're quite concerned, uh, particularly because uh, with what transpired over the winter holidays and the New Year's, we expect that we could see even more hospitalizations, more deaths towards the end of this month. And is that because we're not seeing yet uh, the effects of Christmas and New Year's, the, the surges from, from those two holidays? That's right. There's a delay. Of course, there's the incubation period. Once you're exposed, it takes anywhere from, you know, three to 10 days to to actually develop the infection. And so we are seeing, I think, a, you know, quite a high number of cases related to those winter holiday and New Year's exposures. But then it takes another week or several weeks even to for folks who are going to become sick to develop the illness severely enough to need hospitalization. And then, of course, uh, deaths occur a week to several weeks after that. So doctor, as troubling as the numbers are right now, we, we kind of have to brace ourselves for some, some worse numbers. Possibly. I mean, again, mm-hmm. we're watching very closely. It's yeah. hard to predict. We're, we're hoping we, we've plateaued, uh, but we, we definitely are, are challenged dealing both with 
with the surge, but then also wanting to ramp up vaccinations very quickly. All right. So the, uh, when it comes to vaccines, how many doses does a county have right now and how many people have been vaccinated so far? So we've received close to 700,000 um, vaccines and we've administered, and when I say we, it's not just the health department, but we have many, many other partners between 150 and 200 other sites across the county where vaccines are being administered. And we've administered close to 300,000. So there is then quite a, a supply that have not yet been administered, but um, I would say it's a bit deceptive to, uh, some have been frustrated that there is so much quote unused vaccine, but it's important for people to note that that unused vaccine has already been distributed out. There are providers that are working with their clients to schedule appointments. And so we're very hopeful that that vaccine will be administered relatively quickly. Of course, we rely on then additional sources of vaccine as we plan to ramp up over the last several weeks of this month and on into February. Yeah, there was frustration about that, Doctor, last week. Uh, that, yeah, there, were, you know, there was this thought that these doses are just sitting there, um, but they're spoken for, is, is what you're saying. They're, they may be unused, technically, but they're spoken for. They are spoken for. And remember also that we uh, need not only to think about the first dose, but also the second dose. So all the folks that are getting that first dose will need the second dose three to four weeks down the line. We're trying now to make sure that we have enough vaccine so that we won't have to delay uh, those second doses. Is this enough to get through the current tier of healthcare workers who are in line to be vaccinated, not just uh, with the one shot of the two? We think so, although we're cutting it close. But we are planning to uh, expand vaccination services quite dramatically beginning next week. Uh, we're opening up five community vaccination sites that are very large scale. They're called mega pods or points of dispensing where we hope to be able to vaccinate up to 4,000 persons a day. So, uh, you know, combined across all five sites, that's 20,000 a day. And uh, that would, you know, continue for the last 13 or so days of January. So that would get us up to around 250,000, 260,000 uh, doses administered. In addition, all those other uh, partners that I mentioned that are also administering vaccine, we hope will administer around 250,000 through the end of this month. So our goal is really to be able to vaccinate about 500,000 healthcare workers by the end of the month, including all of the support staff that work in those healthcare settings. And that will get us pretty well through phase 1A. We're talking to Paul Simon, Dr. Paul Simon. He's the chief uh, science officer of L.A. County Public Health. Um, I know the, the state just announced that people 65 and older are eligible for the vaccine, but that uh, will not start in Los Angeles just yet. Uh, doctor, why not? Again, we, <laughs> we wish we could start immediately, of course. We know uh, folks 65 and older are at increased risk for more severe illness from COVID. And so we want to get started as quickly as possible. But Again, we don't believe right at this moment we have adequate supplies of vaccine to begin that rollout immediately. But our goal is to begin that 65 plus age group uh, beginning of February, even sooner if we can, if we get additional supplies. One of the challenges has been that we're, we're not always sure about what uh, volume of vaccine we'll receive from the federal government. It's been you know a little bit inconsistent. And that's made it challenging to plan. That news, uh, doctor, made a lot of people very, very hopeful. It, it almost, I mean, gave them a, a, a bit of a boost in that they thought, okay, well, that means it's starting to ramp up. It's starting to uh, kind of spread a little bit. I think people got very excited. But I, when, when, when they hear the news that uh, it's not quite there yet, I, that letdown, doctor, I think that's what, uh, that's what you're hearing from a lot of people out there right now, that letdown feeling. And we are hearing it loud and clear, and we do understand people have suffered now for, for you know, 10 months. And I just ask folks, please be, be a little, uh, be patient. We're close. We do have a plan. And let me emphasize that for folks that do want additional information, you can go to our website, easy to get to. It's vaccinatelacounty.com. And you, uh, on that site, can learn, you know, which groups are already eligible to receive the vaccine which groups will soon be 
receiving the vaccine. There are approximate timelines. And um, again, I just want to underscore that there is a plan. We know folks are uh, frustrated, anxious, and we're doing everything possible to, to get this vaccine out as quickly as possible. And you mentioned the website, but is, is in terms of notifying people that they are up next, so say how would, how would an otherwise, uh, my otherwise healthy 75-year-old mom find out when, when she can go line up? Great question. So we're using lots of different communication channels. Of course, we'll be uh, uh, working with the media to get the word out, but in addition, working with healthcare providers who then will contact their patients who are in that age group. We'll work with uh, various organizations like AARP and and others. Uh, We have a newsletter uh, that anyone can sign up for on our website. Uh, So we'll use all of those channels, I think, to try to get the word out. Uh, There are senior meals programs, for example, where we can uh, rely on those uh, uh, staff delivering those services to help us get the message out as well. And you also have us, doctor. <laughs> we'll definitely get the word out once uh, once any other groups of people are, are ready to get that vaccine. Uh, once again, we're talking to Dr. Paul Simon, Chief uh, Science Officer of L.A. County Public Health. Um, one more thing on, on who might get priority. I know that uh, Barbara Ferrer discussed an increase in workplace outbreaks during yesterday's update on the county response to COVID. Is there any consideration in moving some people, essential workers, uh, say from grocery stores, for example, higher up on the list, even over maybe healthcare workers who are, who are not seeing COVID patients? So we do recognize that these essential workers face significant risks. The reason healthcare workers were prioritized first, I think, is not only because they're at significant risk, but also because we rely on them to deliver the needed services, the vaccination delivery, but also uh, taking care of folks who are ill. But we are very much prioritizing those essential workers. They're in phase 1B. Again, we're hoping to roll that out also uh, in early February, along with, with seniors. Dodger Stadium is uh, opening up as a vaccination site on Friday. What are the logistics for the city and the county in running that site? How many people ideally will it serve a day? So we're working closely with the city, and I just want to express our appreciation for the support of of the city. They will be running that site at Dodger Stadium, and they're hoping to ramp up to, I believe, between 10,000 and 12,000 vaccinations a day. And as I mentioned, in addition, we'll be... um, uh, rolling out five additional large sites uh, with the goal of vaccinating about 4,000 a day at each of those sites. So it definitely is a collaborative effort. Logistically, very challenging. These vaccines are quite fragile, mm-hmm. so we have to handle them with great care. They have to be maintained very uh, rigorously at certain temperatures, uh, and, and the staff have to be trained in terms of how to manage that and then to deliver the vaccines. Of course, we'll need lots of support staff as well. So it's been a major mobilization effort, but I think we're very excited and uh, we'll uh, look forward to, you know, advertising those sites. Uh, I think in the next day or two, we'll begin to uh, hopefully accept appointments. Are are the larger sites more difficult logistically than say smaller sites? I know that I heard about 75 community sites that are already opening this week, but I'm wondering which of the two is, is easier to, to work. It's interesting. You would think the smaller ones would be easier, but in certain respects, the larger ones uh, can be more effective because of economies of scale. But um, ideally, I think what we would like is over time to pivot as much of these vaccination services into the healthcare system, because that's where the infrastructure really is well established to deliver vaccine. There are literally thousands of providers that can deliver the vaccine. Uh, but because there's not a great deal of vaccine supply right now and because of the the cold chain requirements, we feel like these pods are the best way to go, particularly to get the healthcare workforce uh, vaccinated. But over time, we'll be relying on our healthcare partners and pharmacies. Very importantly, we have a large number of pharmacies that have al- already uh, uh, received vaccine, are vaccinating healthcare workers, but very soon we'll be uh, vaccinating people in those other groups we talked about. That's Dr. Paul Simon. Doctor, if you have to take that phone call, go right ahead. We completely understand you're very busy. Thank you very much uh, for giving us some time. Thank you very much.
All right, coming up, tracking hate groups. It isn't as easy as it used to be. Not even as easy as it was last month. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. The events of last week in Washington, D.C. still have people feeling a bit shaken. Now with reports that multiple protests are being planned for cities all over the U.S. starting this weekend, including here in L.A., there's concern that things could again get out of hand. Robert Garova has been talking to L.A. law enforcement about how it's preparing. Uh, Robert, uh, what do we know about uh, now about the events that uh, will take place this weekend in the L.A. area and when they are going to happen? So we've seen digital flyers on social media inviting people to gather in Beverly Hills uh, near the Wallace Annenberg Center and uh, in downtown L.A. near City Hall. The organizers uh, of, the, of the rally in Beverly Hills seem to be the same folks who've organized several of other, the other pro-Trump protests that we saw, uh, you know, last, last year, definitely over the summer. Yeah, and Beverly Hills has been the home to a number of pro-Trump rallies in recent months, especially leading up to the election. How are they preparing there? So Beverly Hills PD uh, says it has the appropriate resources to handle any protests. Uh, they're expecting less than 100 people on Saturday, uh, they told us. Um, and here's what Acting Captain Max Subin said about what will happen if they need more assistance. We will uh, go to our mutual aid partners, Santa Monica, Culver City, and UCLA and West Hollywood. We've also reached out to the Emergency Operation Bureau of, of L.A. County Sheriff's Department and made them aware of our protest of this Saturday. Captain Subin also said they'd be supported by armed security guards uh, driving around Beverly Hills and its business area. All right. Now, what's the sheriff's department saying about its preparations? So the sheriff's department, uh, the emailed statement I got from from them yesterday was pretty brief. Um, this is what it said, quote, uh, remain, uh, the sheriff's department remains prepared to peacefully manage any protests with the appropriate resources and personnel. Um, Sheriff Alex Villanueva was scheduled to take questions on Facebook Live yesterday. That was going to be regarding um, what they just said was current events. Uh, That appearance was canceled. Then yesterday afternoon, he put out a a taped statement on YouTube in an attempt to reassure Angelinos of the department's commitment to public safety. Um, In that, he said the department will, quote, honor and defend the public's right to peaceful protests but it has to be, quote, in a manner that does not harm our communities. Okay. Now, what about uh, LAPD? What did uh, they have to say? LAPD, uh, they, they said it's, uh, you know, they plan for increased activity during Inauguration Week and will have adequate resources to respond to any situation. The department uh, is prepared to go prepared to go on tactical alert in the case of violence, um, and they added that uh, everyone in uniform could be deployed if things got out of hand. So that would include not just patrol officers, but uh, also detectives, officers on administrative functions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was downtown for one of um, the days last year when we saw the National Guard there uh, responding to Black Lives Matter protests. LAPD Captain Stacy Spell uh, had this to say about any National Guard response now. 
I mean, their deployment has to be authorized uh, actually by the by the governor. They can be requested, obviously, by the city, but uh, there are no plans uh, that that I am aware of that would ask for the National Guard to to come into the city of Los Angeles. All right. Now we mentioned events Saturday, uh, Robert. Anything else you're aware of? Anything on Inauguration Day, uh, next Wednesday, anything like that? Not that I've seen. Um, Beverly Hills PD told us that they're not aware of anything planned for the 20th, but they will have the maximum deployment and staff monitoring social media posts. But things could definitely change uh, in the next six days. Um, We've also seen posts on social media announcing rallies as far out as January 30th. So Inauguration Day may not be the last we see of this. That's KPCC's Robert Garova. Robert, thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, so clearly law enforcement is on high alert and are preparing our public spaces. But what can be done about the threat of extremists online? By now, you've probably heard of Parler. That's the social media site that right-wing groups and white supremacists flocked to before the Capitol siege last week. But with social media companies cracking down, hate groups may be migrating to smaller, harder-to-track communities. Here to discuss all of this is Joanna Mendelson. She is the associate director at the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Uh, Joanna, let's uh, start out with the work you do for the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, When you're looking for evidence of these hate groups online, what do you keep an eye out for? Thanks for having me. So our work of fighting hate and extremism has never been more important. Nearly around the clock, we are working to monitor, expose, and disrupt extremist threats and activity both on the ground as well as in the virtual space. Because the online hate and extremism that we see poses a significant threat. The ability to weaponize bigotry against marginalized communities, silence voices through intimidation, and recruit others into this hateful ideology is a tool that we are seeing used by extremists. So in general, we're looking for trends, calls for violence and criminality, as well as the conspiracies which have injected fear and disinformation into the national conversation. So the conspiracy theories are up uh, on that list, high on that list. Absolutely. Conspiracies Mm. are essentially the lifeblood of this ideology and of right wing extremism right now. So can you give us uh, some examples of the kinds of groups you would find on these websites? I think we see extremists of all stripes who are using technology to communicate and to reach other like-minded adherents. Our attention lately has been mostly focused on a range of right-wing extremists, including white supremacists, anti-government adherents, anti-Semites, and other conspiracy theorists. How do you tell the difference? I mean, I know it's, it's all bad, but how do you tell the difference between the ones that are just talking, the ones that might be on the edge of action? So we're, we are in this time where we don't have the luxury to not take their rhetoric seriously. For a long time now, we have been kind of banging that drum, uh, monitoring extremist rhetoric online, calling for a race war, calling for uh, a civil, uh, civil war, uh, and fighting uh, within our nation. And so we take what they're saying and analyze it, understand it, and follow those uh, individuals and their various posts to see if it rises to the level of criminality. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how various uh, right-wing and white supremacist groups uh, use the social media network Parler leading up to uh, the Capital C. Joanna, can you tell us a little bit more about Parler and what you were seeing from users on that site before last week happened? Yeah, the, the social media site Parler which had become increasingly popular amongst conservatives, actually attracted a range of extremists as well. And the site, up until it was taken down this past Sunday, drew millions of new users frustrated with what they perceived to be, quote, anti-conservative bias exhibited by mainstream social media platforms. So while the site itself is not extremist and we can't overgeneralize, we did see extremists join Parler in large numbers alongside millions of mainstream users. And that creates this potential for an extensive and worrying commingling of extremists and non-extremists. And my understanding on Parler is that uh, it is uh, basically just a a freewheeling site. I mean, you could put anything you want, or you could put anything you wanted up there. 
There was very little content moderation. So on some of the other platforms that we may see, we see a little bit more of a heavy hand in, in the types of content, um, kind of enforcing their terms of service. But in Parler, uh, we saw very little content moderation. So the site itself, not extremists, but extremists flock to the site. Exactly. And the ability and, and the exposure to these extremist narratives, to other extremists who are injecting conspiracies, racism, racism and anti-Semitism, essentially exposes um, and uh, helps the indoctrination and recruitment process into some of these more extreme movements. Now, in the wake of the siege on the Capitol, Parler has been banned on the Google and Apple app stores, uh, kicked off of Amazon servers, too. What does that mean, though, for everyone who was using the site to spread hate and disinformation? Now, what have you seen in terms of where the activity and how it's migrating? So we noticed in the final hours before Parler was taken down that the users would post their intentions to move to alternative platforms such as Telegram or Gab. Um, and essentially, these are spaces. These were the lion's den of, uh, of hate that they are now um, migrating to. And so we see also in the final hours, their uh, individuals, users posting anti-Semitism, conspiracies, and directed their anger towards Amazon. So now we see a mass migration to other sites, to other platforms, some of them with very limited content moderation. Um, and that further forces them into these echo chambers where they could potentially be surrounded by other like-minded individuals and kind of further exacerbate that, that rabbit hole. Joanna, we're hearing that they're also moving over to TikTok, which I always just thought was a place for 13-year-olds or celebrities to post funny videos. You know, sadly, uh, extremists never miss an opportunity to harness and weaponize hate. And they're always trying to find creative ways to reach new audiences, new ways to evade contact moderators. Um, and so their latest efforts are evident on TikTok, where we've seen white supremacists and anti-Semites using a range of methods to recruit new adherents and share their content. So it's whether or not they're creating specific hashtags or dubbing over content with racist messages uh, that are very difficult to detect. To detect, we're seeing um, extremists use TikTok and other apps for their purposes. Joanna, any risk that it, in banning a site such as Parler that it actually makes these hate groups even harder to track? I, I think there's a combination of this whack-a-mole game, right? Like, what is the systemic solution that we're going to use? The big picture, because as one platform curtails their activity or is, is goes dark, we see extremists then hop over to other spaces. And some of these spaces are encrypted. They're harder to, uh, to access and to penetrate. Um, and the possibility for those of us who are activists at the ADL, or law enforcement, reporters who are trying to shine a bright light on extremist activity, it makes it much more difficult in some ways. Now, what's the most important thing that people should know as they navigate social media, especially, uh, Joanna, for parents with children who may be using an app like TikTok and might run across one of these messages? I think it's really important to give our children, our students, our next generation the tools to navigate the virtual space. We no longer have the luxury to say you're going to, you know, uh, hover over their shoulders and monitor their activities because in today's day and age, we have kids have access to all sorts of uh, uh, platforms and, and um, devices. But if we train them to be critical consumers of information, to be aware of what they are reading, the source material and the content, and, and work from the kind of more um, core elements of helping them navigate, we will be better served. That's Joanna Mendelson, Associate Director at the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. Joanna, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, 2020 gave us a lot to think about. We had the pandemic, we had the election, but don't forget... It was also the year of social justice and police reform conversations. That continues in 2021. You'll hear it uh, from us uh, when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
Parole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lemur Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Good times, good times. There's going to be good times, good times. Got no job. And my pockets don't seem to have a jingle. But as long as you let me hold you tight, everything is going to be all right. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. There are a lot of changes on the way in 2021. For people in Los Angeles, one of the most anticipated changes is a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement and communities of color. Well, hopefully. But what would it look like? Well, today we continue our series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead. And joining us today is Connie Rice, a civil rights attorney and former member of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. She's also a life trustee of Southern California Public Radio's board, which governs KPCC. Connie, all right, so let's uh, start with a gut check. Uh, you're renowned for your background in leading reforms within the LAPD over the years on multiple occasions, uh, such as in the mid 2000s when you chaired the panel to investigate the Rampart scandal within the department. Uh, what are your feelings right now about the likelihood that meaningful change will take place inside L.A. law enforcement agencies in 2021? Jury is still out, eh? It's an ongoing process. Uh, institutional and cultural change just takes generations. And we're certainly further along than we were in the Gates and Davis and Redlick days. But right now, it's, it's a matter of triage. Hasn't it felt like the jury's been out for decades and decades? People of color have always yeah. wanted and hoped for change. If you're in a poor community on the wrong side of the thin blue line, you don't get safety. You get, as a, a one deputy chiefs told the LA Times about two years ago, uh, we stop black males between the ages of 18 and 28, and if they look like they're gang members, they get stopped and harassed. It doesn't mean that individual officers uh, don't dedicate themselves to try to make life better for people in South L.A. and East L.A., Pacoima. But I'm talking about the social system's decision that policing is going to be about preserving an order. And that order means that poor communities get a different kind of policing. We've been working to change that system. So what would be the biggest change that you would like to see prioritized in 2021 here in Los Angeles? Change their mission. We've told them fight a war on gangs. It becomes a war on gang members. We told them fight a war on drugs. It becomes a war on people in poor communities who provide the drugs to people in richer communities. And at the same time, you defunded the community of infrastructure, of jobs, of basic clinics and grocery stores. You have to shore them up. And once you stabilize them with the services that allow people to actually feel safe enough to walk to work and walk to school, then you can institute a different kind of policing. Then on that, though, based on your past experiences with the LAPD, how willing do you think current leadership and rank and file are in terms of enacting those reforms about their mission? Well, LAPD, Chief Moore has just created an entire bureau, which means there's a power platform for guardian policing. Guardian cops look at the community and they say, we will arrest if there's violence, but we are here to help the community organize itself around safety strategies and public health. We're speaking to Connie Rice, civil rights attorney, former member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. So it sounds like everything we've talked about when it comes to changing the mission of police um, and involving all the community partners that you mentioned would require a, a redirection of funds. And the city council recently tried to do that. But uh, just recently, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti issued a, a rare veto of that plan that would have re-diverted money from the LAPD budget into uh, a lot of community programs. So I'm wondering how much are potential changes within the police department riding on how this plays out politically at City Hall? I find a lot of that discussion to be full of red herrings. 
most of the county money and most of the city money goes to salary lines, which means you have to have government workers doing their jobs differently. Right now, we're not deploying those workers. They're, they're doing what they're used to doing in a system that was designed not to solve problems, but to service the symptoms of problems. And so um, while I understand the frustration of the protesters, defunding the police isn't going to change them. And since you can't abolish them, um, you need to, you need, if you're going to take money out of police budgets, it needs to be done strategically so that it doesn't hurt the safety strategies in our high crime, high violence, high trauma areas. Do police budgets take up way too much of city budgets? Oh, absolutely. I guess I'm arguing about what's the strategy and what's your goal? Picking a war over the funding rather than talking about the massive refunding that's needed for these communities. That's not going to be found in police budgets. So when it comes then to changes, the public will want to be able to see and feel them. So can you say, identify a couple of things, two things that, or maybe your top thing that the LAPD could institute in 2021 that are achievable, reasonable to deputies and are a step toward maybe generating trust between the department and communities of color? One of the best things that you can do, and Chief Moore has been doing this, is to continue to invest in the Community Safety Partnership Bureau. The Community Safety Partnership Bureau was created last year. That way of policing, guardianship policing, that is focused on providing safety in high crime, high violence, high trauma areas. What the officers do is they abandon the old mass incarceration, shock and awe enforcement. And you go 180 degrees over and you help the community organize itself against the violence, against the gang culture, and help the community win resources to provide safety strategies, making sure the public places are safe, pools, libraries, public housing, uh, common areas, school hallways. So community safety partnership policing is a strategy where officers become part of the community and help solve the problems that create the crime and create the violence and the trauma. Not only does CSP increase trust, they wanted that kind of policing, they wanted the relationships with the officers, they like the fact that the officers stay for five years and dedicate themselves to making that community healthier and safer. So that's the kind of policing that the communities who live in gang territories say they want. And would that be a, a wave where people will be able to see and feel changes uh, underway by, by all of those things not being how police interact with the community? Uh, the residents reported that they, it did make a difference. They wanted those cops and they could tell the difference between those officers and the officers who just randomly stop everybody. I mean, right now, a, I mean, to show you how massive a failure our public policy has been, there was a shocking report by uh, a Harvard economist named Raj Chetty's. And Dr. Chetty did an analysis of the Nickerson Gardens housing project. And he found that on any given day, if you're a black man between the ages of 18 and 30, every time you leave your unit on any given day, you stand a 45% chance of going to jail. That's what mass stop and frisk, mass incarceration, shock and awe enforcement has produced. That's not because of any specific criminal liability that you're wanted for. That's just how saturated our incarceration strategy has been deployed in that neighborhood. If you consider that a success, then the conversation's over. Mm. I consider that an abject failure of public policy. And we've asked the police to carry out corrupt public policies in this way. So how do you encourage people to keep faith when that promise of change hasn't always paid off? And do you think the protests of 2020 will make change more possible now than maybe ever before? What it takes to actually change American policing We've only been doing police reform in this country for about 30 years. Before that, it wasn't even a discussion. You had lots of post-riot audits and post, uh, you know, whenever there was a, a police-triggered race riot, which has been most of the race riots in this country have been triggered by police misconduct. The protests were very important to calling attention and shining a light on it. The, the list of changes that many of the advocates are asking for are all good things to do. But if you made all of those changes, everything from qualified immunity police have all the way to whether they can use chokeholds. But until you change the mission and until you reposition policing to actually effect a change in how they treat poor people, there are no incentives to do that right now. But the fact that you mentioned how white America got involved more than ever before, possibly, is that something to actually hang a hat on to say, look, now change might be around the corner? It's not going to be around the corner. 
we can begin a serious discussion about what's needed. And then we're going to have to do the arm wrestling to change the uh, politics. But it's going to take a while to produce blueprints, strategies, showing people what we have right now and how it actually works. And what are the steps you have to take to go 180 degrees away into guardian wraparound safety? So A, I, I understand the frustration. And, and for African-Americans, it has been a 400-year struggle and we're tired. But I also understand how cultural and institutional change in formal institutions and what it takes. That's Connie Rice, civil rights attorney, former member of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Connie, as always, thank you very much. It's great to be with you, A. Thank you. All right, you know that uh, L.A. is big, it is diverse, there's a lot of stuff in it. A lot of great music in Los Angeles, but you'd be surprised how much music there is in L.A. Really extending all the way down from the tip of Argentina to right at the top of Baja, California. So much music, it's all really here. A book now catalogs all of it. It's coming up on Take Two. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Trustworthy, independent news is getting harder to find, but it's out there, and it matters for democracy. A healthy local news ecosystem leads to a stronger community. You can feel the difference, and you get strong journalism from LAist. So donate today at laist.com slash give. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on Apple Podcasts, I'm Amy Martinez. As a lifelong lover of radio stories, I was really jazzed recently to read a book inspired by a lifetime of stories originally produced for the radio. Now, over the past four years, Take Two has aired many stories about music and culture by journalist Beto Arcos, but his passion for audio storytelling has been going on for much longer than that. Now, he's compiled nearly 30 years of work into his brand new book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. All right, uh, Beto, you have uh, 150 stories in here, and you break them down into 12 topic areas, such as uh, immigration, identity, adversity, place and nation. How did you decide to organize the book uh, this way? In a sense, I wanted to create a narrative that readers could sort of follow. But at the same time, I wanted people to just pick up the book and kind of open it whatever they wanted. But I felt that because of, you know, the so many stories that I've done over the last, as you said, more than 25 years, I felt like I had to create a narrative for every story. So in other words, I came up with chunks of stories that had a theme underlying it. So, for example, there are stories about immigration that have to do with the conversation that we've had in this country for decades. Uh, There are stories that have to do with identity. And it's not just identity in the sense of Mexican-Americans or Cuban-Americans or what have you, but it's more about how an artist or a musician thinks of identity in terms of the music, in terms of what they're creating. Everything goes back to this you know, connection that all of us have as humans with music, which is really sort of the essence of what the book is about. Now, when people dive into the book, Beto, one of the things they'll probably notice is how rooted in Los Angeles many of the stories are. Tell us a a couple of the L.A.-based stories that stand out the most to you. One story that stands out to me immediately is the story of Son Jarocho. Son Jarocho, as many people know, it's as L.A. as anything else. I mean, this is a music that comes from where I happen to be from, from Veracruz, Mexico. But nowadays, Son Jarocho is as important to L.A. as punk music was in, in the late 70s. You see, everybody associates this music with this city. 
and so for example the story of Cesar Castro a musician who came to Los Angeles from Veracruz Antes de cruzar el río lejos de llegar al mar tras las lomas sale el brillo la vida se empieza a dar tras las lomas sale el... He became this important teacher community leader musician that you know everybody looks up to everybody looks to his guidance to his character to his music and it has everything to do with this place that we call Los Angeles where all of these cultures come together just like the story of a musician from uh, the valley named Areni Akbabian She's a pianist she's Armenian American and you know I was really really astounded to find in the middle of Los Angeles in in Van Nuys a church that was performing music from the Middle Ages and she told me about this I wouldn't have known until I interviewed her I went to her place and and she told me about this orthodox Armenian church where there was a singer who sang these medieval chants that moved from Istanbul to Los Angeles and and she said This is a, a tradition that's dying and I'm trying to help mm. it continue. And this is something that really kind of blew me away about Los Angeles that you could find music like this in the city. It's just uh, amazing. We're talking to Beto Arcos about his new book Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Uh Beto, I'm so glad you brought up an Armenian artist because one of the things I wanted to mention about this book is that while the majority of your stories are about Latin American artists or themes, the book is not exclusively about that. And I I find it interesting that there was a, a chapter about Armenian music in the USA and part of the focus was of a group Armenian Public Radio. Tell us about them. This is a trio of three musicians who felt that they wanted to do something for folk music from Armenia but they wanted it to be listened to by their community they felt that the Armenian American community here in Los Angeles doesn't listen enough to folk music from Armenia and they created this sound taking from American folk music and they kind of blended this music with Armenian folk songs so every song they sing they sing in Armenian and they are all folk songs from Armenia but they adapted them to sound as if they were American folk songs <laughs> That's the beauty of this of living in in a city like LA where you can find something like this. Now, your your book is called Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. What is the Cosmic Barrio? Where is it? Can I visit it, Beto? You live in the Cosmic Barrio. I think of Los Angeles as as a big cosmic barrio and the idea came to me from a friend actually a writer Ruben Martinez who's written a number of books and when I was working at KPFK I was I had to create a program for the weekend and I said Ruben I I need a name for a show that that showcases the diversity and the richness of music that's in Los Angeles and a couple of days later he says I have a name for you Cosmic Barrio I said <laughs> wow that's perfect I love it so I I held on to that name for years you know this is about I don't know 15 years ago or so when I created that program and so then I thought this is a great idea for a book because you know in a sense I have been traveling all over Latin America all over the world for that matter and I've been discovering these cosmic barrios where all this amazing music is created where all of this creativity is just happening and it it's basically like Los Angeles you know it's to me it's this kind of idea that we live in this wonderful place called earth in this planet there are all of these wonderful areas where you can find some amazing music amazing culture and that's sort of the idea for the cosmic barrio You know, sometimes it feels like music from Latin America gets thrown into a big bin that says the word Spanish on it with no more thought about how diverse it is. I mean, from Tijuana all the way down through the southern tip of Argentina, how does how does your book, you think Beto serves as a way to provide context and some identity to Latin American music? This is one of those things where I really would hope people would understand that 
that the idea that Latin music is, you know, sort of just one thing that just gets thrown, just like you say, into, into one category, this book completely deconstructs that idea. It really tells you, wait a minute, this music is much more complex and much more diverse and richer than just this idea that there is this Latin music, that there are these categories, alternative, you know, tropical, uh, Mexican regional. It's way more than that. I mean, this book shows you that the diversity can be found in every country and in every region because, I mean, you know, as, as much as I know, that every country has many musical regions. And this book shows you that you can find all kinds of different musics in every country. Beto, in the book's intro, you write, uh, every story I've written about music and identity, music and immigration, music and education, music and community building has to do with who I am as a person. Music has the power to transform lives. I know it transformed me. Beto, what will this collection of your stories tell us about how music has transformed your life and about you? I don't think I would be here talking to you about music, about this book, if it weren't for the actual music. I've been listening to music since I was a little kid. My mom used to turn on the radio when, when I was about five or six years old. And music grabbed me from the very beginning. I learned how to play the guitar. And then the radio became my vehicle to, to tell people how much I love music. And you can tell from how passionate I am, how passionate I write about these artists and how just, you know, how much love and appreciation I have for music. I really feel like music has changed my life. It just wouldn't, I would not be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for music. And that's the case of so many of the artists that I talked to, that I interviewed, that are part of this book. Music changed their lives. In some cases, they wouldn't be around if it weren't for music. For them, music was their vehicle to go from one thing to another and to completely you know, see the world differently. That's music and culture journalist Beto Arcos. His new book is Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Beto, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Eddie. It is a really beautiful book. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, Beto Arcos will be discussing that book via Zoom and Facebook Live at 7 o'clock on La Plaza de Cultura y Artes Facebook page. Oh, take two is over. I thought we had a long way to go. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast, so please uh, look for us. There we will be. You can also find us on Twitter at Take Two. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then. <laughs>